Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. How's everybody doing? This is Ryan Tansom. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. Today's guest's name is Pamela Dennis. I was uh, super pumped when Pamela was able to make it on the show. She wrote a book called Exit Signs, and it was one of the books that I ended up buying after our exit. And the greatest thing about Pamela is she's just not another author who wrote a book about how to sell your company. She's actually been there and done that with her own company. And what I loved about her journey is she had a professional services firm and did a lot of consulting for some very, very large, well-known businesses and business leaders. And the thing about professional services firms where you're mainly trading dollars for hours, it's very difficult to step back and see what is it that I can do to this business to make it actually worth something that's transferable to someone else. And Pamela did just that. There were some very unique things she did with her intellectual property and how she took what she knew in her head and monetized it and, and made it into a product for passive income. That was one of the biggest things that she was focused in on. So between Pamela's book and her own exit journey and story that she shares with us, there's plenty of gold nuggets throughout the interview. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy the interview with Pamela Dennis. Good morning, Pamela. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you very much for coming on the show. I'm uh, looking forward to today's conversation. As am I. So for our listeners, you've got a very awesome background between being an author and an entrepreneur yourself. And why don't you just give our listeners a little bit of a background of where you came from. You're in San Diego right now. We were just kind of talking about how you were in Boulder and uh, you've had just quite the journey. So why don't you kind of just give us a little bit of the cliff notes? Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, well, I moved to Colorado from uh, LA area in order to work on a PhD and never left and had thought I was wanting to grow into the field of being a superintendent of schools and decided after about six months that I really wanted to be more like a CEO of a company. So I switched to the business school at the University of Colorado and did some work there um, and started in with very large corporations as uh, internal to like storage tech and, and some other companies and ended up deciding I really wanted to start my own business and I wanted it to be a consulting firm and professional services. I wanted to understand what it was like to really have to meet a payroll and grow a business and if I'm going to sit across from CEOs and help them think about strategy and their organizational effectiveness, I probably ought to know what it was like to do the same thing. So back in 1985, I started a solo um, consulting firm that just took off. And part of it was the time in which uh, large companies were doing some very, very interesting things in organization development. But right from the beginning, I knew I wanted to have an entity. And I think that's one of the things that most entrepreneurs aren't clear about. Are they starting a company because they want a good job until the next one big company comes along and offers them something? Or are they really trying to grow an equity-based company that they can invest in both sweat equity and you know, reinvest profits and so forth? 
Um, and I knew right from the beginning that that's what I wanted to do is grow uh, an entity that I could use as a basis for retirement and that it would keep going after I left. So fortunately, just amazing clients came our way from General Electric to NASA to uh, companies in Australia. And so we had, by when I started, which was a company of one, and when I ended was a partnership of six with about 20 independent contractors that worked with us on really large, you know, one and a half, two million dollar projects across the world. One of my original goals was to um, compete with the big boys like Arthur Anderson at the time and um, before there was uh, PWC, mm-hmm. but never never act like them. And so, as it turned out, we ended up competing against some of those very clients for some of the largest corporations in the world for their business. And we just had a ball. We exceeded any possible dreams we might have had early on about not only the kinds of companies we would work with, but the um, places we would go and the kinds of leaders we would meet. So in, in my fortunate time with of 18 years with Destra Consulting, which was my firm, I worked with Eric Schmidt, who was at the time Sun Microsystems and then mm-hmm. ended up as CEO of Google. I worked with uh, Jeff Immelt when he was first vice president of uh, plastics at GE and now, of course, is the CEO of GE. And I worked with Mary Barra. At the time, she was just a director in, in communications and HR and worked with her for about a year and a half. And now she's the CEO of, of General Motors. So I've just... Quite the crew. <laughs> quite the crew. And, and yet at the same time, I also worked with very small um, emerging biotech companies and pharmaceutical companies, engineering consulting, environmental services. Uh, so it was really a range of different companies, but all the time I had a very clear sense of what it was going to take to build this entity. Um, so and I then gotta... eventually after having, go ahead. No, 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 keep going. <laughs> well, and, and then it came time after about hmm, seven or eight years, I said, huh. So how am I going to get out of this business? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I want to retire at fifty-five, and um, so we started thinking about. At that point, we had three partners and two staff, and we were at about just under a million, I think, in revenues. And I knew we were going to grow. We just had the kind of client base. And so we needed to start thinking about how, what our exits, my exit strategy was going to be and what the person who was old, my second partner who was actually older than me was the first one who wanted to leave. So um, we went through a whole exit planning uh, process with a renowned exit planner out of Denver who's written several books uh, and put a plan in place, a five-year plan, which we thought was crazy. Five years but um, it worked. So our first partner left and continued to have an earnout revenue or income after that for a couple years. And then uh, uh, one year, I was supposed to leave in 2002 and the build a bigger engine, get seduced by I saw growth. it in your book. You were addicted. You saw you saw yeah, a fifty percent growth coming, didn't you? <laughs> we did. We saw a fifty potential for fifty percent growth, and to to meet our 
five million by two thousand and five um, if I stayed one more year to help with this huge client and make the transfer to a new partner and so on. And so we just were disciplined, and that's I think part of the secret of of good exit planning is start early and stay disciplined and make sure that what you do year by year is leading you on the same highway towards that exit. So anyway, that's my story. Well, I love it. And there's so many places to dive deeper. And um, I'm going to go back to one of your first comments was you wanted to have the payroll, which I think is in my world, it's kind of, I, I think it's kind of funny because most business owners that I know, that was like a byproduct, like, oh crap, <laughs> like we've got this payroll now because they went in because they were passionate about a specific industry or something, ha- or it's kind of like, oh, they, all of a sudden they wake up and they've got this infrastructure behind them. And it was almost the opposite where you so intelligently and, and intentionally went into this um, with a plan ahead of time. And my my question for you is, was it because of your PhD that you got? Was it something during the, the schooling that you got or some of your clients that uh, – what sparked you to have the plan from the beginning? Well, I, the plan is in my vocabulary. If you ask my husband about going on vacation, <laughs> he will say, just get a ticket to go somewhere. And I do all the planning because I'm just a planner. And so what I didn't have a 10-page business plan. I had a one-page piece of paper that said, here's why I'm going into this business. Here's what it will be. Here's what it won't be. Um, and here's the kind of clients I want to work for. And here's the kind of work we don't want to do, we meaning me. Mm-hmm. Um and the notion of having a payroll, it's, it's a little bit uh, schizophrenic because on the one hand, I didn't want to have a big payroll. I didn't want to have a huge staff. Uh, on the other hand, I wanted to know what it was like to really build and run a business, which meant, of course, you're going to have people that you have to pay, that you bring on. And so the strategy was to bring on partners who had skin in the game. And that wanted an equity position in a building, in a growing business. And to keep staff minimum, what is it really going to take for us to make sure the infrastructure is in place, that it's being run well, you know, bills are getting paid, invoices are being paid. And then everyone else was going to be kind of a, the old Tom Peters loose tight. There were a core group of people who thought kind of like us, had the right skill background. They became very close contractors. In some cases, we would actually turn a piece of business over to them um, to run it for us or with us. And others were plug and play if if there was a training program or something. So we knew from the beginning that the plan was to stay skin in the game, small group of, of partners with a community of professional consultants who would work for us part-time. But kind of not keep them like family, but not... Eggs. We called it a family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we really did. And we, you know, we did things like community service days and client days and brainstorming days where we would bring 10 or 12 people together. And, and then we ended up doing a newsletter, which I never liked doing, but one of my partners loved it, so that they always knew what was going on because we wanted it to really be a community. So when we went, we went to bid on a huge project in, 
in Australia. Um, and we were a team of four with about 12, 14 uh, independent, very close uh, contractor consultants and we want, we beat out two of the biggest uh, consulting firms in the world I kid you not and they kept saying are you sure you can do this work there's only four of you <laughs> but we presented all the same things that they wanted and yet we somehow convinced them and, and of course at the time it was three women owners in the business not and uh, not as diverse as we are now. So it's uh, part of it is having that dream. Part of it is having that vision that you can put down at least on a single piece of paper that says, here's what it is, here's what it isn't. So then when you were like, when you're building this and you're focusing on the consulting and the practices that you were delivering to your clients, um, Tell me, was there a strategy with what you knew? Like, where did you find out, like, as you're bringing in equity partners, how it's valued, you know, what the value was to yourself, to the marketplace, to these other individuals? What was the the dialogue around that? Professional services companies have a very difficult time because they don't have a lot of hard assets. We did not own a building, for instance. We we did have copyrighted uh, IP. Uh, but most important is was our track record. And because we had such fine uh, documentation of our company history and our projected earnings, we could have a business valuation based on revenues, anticipated um, uh, growth that we had met growth targets every year at double digit growth. We had so we also had, a professional work with us because I believe in if I want to be a professional expert and and consultant to someone and I think they should trust my judgment I want to be able to do the same thing with professionals who know certainly areas I don't we also because we sometimes did JV ventures with um, other consulting firms we had offers to buy us or buy us out and so we had a sense of what our worth was to them based on who our clients were, what our revenues were. I mean, when you have mostly Fortune 100 clients that hire you year after year after year, you have enough credibility and track record of what your revenues and what your profit um, line is that we didn't, have a, we didn't have trouble figuring out what our value was. Even when we brought partners in and we valued the business again, then we'd do a big discount because we would want them so badly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they would still, I mean, our last partner paid 120000 in equity to buy into the business. Um, and that was three years before I retired. So with professional services firms, and that's where you're delivering you know, your talents and your consulting expertise. Um, and there's a lot of different variations, of professional services too. But um, as you and I were talking uh, prior to getting on the call is, you know, there's so many challenges because, you know, there was a, there was a, a woman that was on the show a few weeks ago, I believe it was, where she had a manufacturing firm and how you can reorganize and create efficiencies in a, in a, manufacturing plan is so much different than a professional services firm. And I, I think a lot of owners struggle with trying to figure out what is it that they're going to be selling because it generally is them. 
And so how are you going about doing this with these other firms, whether it was delegating the, the tasks or creating processes within it? What was some of the things that you did in order to make it run the way it did? Right from the beginning, in fact, it's a funny story. Um, the first business partner I brought in in year two and a half, um, we were de- we were determined. We were going to identify because we had been working in the area of business process improvement for quite a while at, at, them, at that point in time. We said, what are our core five processes? Okay, there's finance, you know, there's all the managing of all the financials. There's intellectual property. There's... Uh, business acquisition. And so we had laid out what our five, oh, and, and partner development. So taking care of people. And so there were only two of us. Okay, who's going to take what? <laughs> and we got all wrapped up in what the infrastructure is going to be and what the processes and should we map the processes out like we had done with big companies. And our CPA sat down with us one day and he said, stop. <laughs> he said, Go sell some business. <laughs> so we did. So for the next year or so, I mean, we did define core roles. Like I was in charge of finance because my signature was on the line for any line of credit. And um, But we said, oh, okay, I guess we're getting the cart ahead of the horse. And so we went out and we started really developing business so that we were no longer chipping in money every quarter to pay the rent. Um and then we started putting processes in place because we had come from that background. And as we brought new partners in, it was our responsibility then to hand off one of those core processes and fetch that person up to be able to manage it. Um, the hardest one to deal with was <clears throat> intellectual property because I knew that we had to eventually get to some pra- passive income. It couldn't be just – you cannot get beyond the – excuse me. You have to be able to get beyond the billable hour. You only have so many hours that you can sell. And unless you're going to be, and we had really high consulting rates, uh, huge, I mean, crazy. And still, we said, we can't be working, billing 60 hours a week, 300 hour, 300 days a year. We have to, you know, have some boundaries. So we needed to develop intellectual property. And that was one of the things that a lot of small businesses, and especially professional services, but not always make a mistake. I just I just spent oh two uh, two and a half hours gratis with um, an emerging well more like startup company, and all the intellectual property was in the founder's head. Yep, that's they very common. <laughs> they they hadn't patented their technology. They were uh, you know they had a it, I won't go into the details. It was terrifying to listen. And every time I'd say, so what prevents you from moving this on to, you know, shared knowledge and how are you, if, if you have nothing to sell, you don't have intellectual property to sell if it isn't patented. You, the only thing you can sell is you, Mr. Founder. And he said, yeah, I suppose so. I was like, okay, well, I guess then, you know, you're going to be a big discount on what the true value. I mean, this company was had 60% margins. Wow. But and position, position to grow unbelievably because of this amazing product that they had developed, proven, and already was, you know, sitting on very, very successful, huge companies' shelves. Anyway, but 
that's one of the harder things about whether it's a small company or a mid-sized company or professional services is getting that into intellectual property out and processes out of the head of the key founders into the institutional memory of the company. So is it is it putting it into, I mean, I think today's world, I mean, everybody throws stuff into software. I mean, is it building some sort of platform or repeatable you know, process? What are, what are some of the ways that you've seen some people take that intellectual property that's in their head and then systematize it or productize it, if that's a word? Yeah, productize it is a good word. Well, in my field, which was um, uh, organization effectiveness, change management, uh, we did work in Six Sigma, and so in, in I would say about forty percent of our business was um, training. So, oh, wow. so there you go. You have materials. You, there are materials you can copyright. There are materials that you can bind and sell, or you can turn them on. I mean, in that, back then when everything was print, you can turn them into online um, educational programs. You can license them if you want to have a program, if, if a company loves what you do and they want you to develop the internal capability, which is one of our principles. Don't become consultant dependent for your client. Make sure you transfer the knowledge, transfer the uh not the IP, but at least the capability so that they can deliver it themselves. So the last year I was there, we took our program, which we had been doing for three years with this very, very large company in Australia, and licensed it to them for half a million dollars. How did you and determine so your pricing for that? Just you just curious. pulled it out of our, you know. <laughs> yes, no, I, no, I like it. <laughs> part of it is, part of it is, you know, if they if they continue using you as a um, outside resource, it's very expensive. So, what is what is the opportunity for them for a much smaller amount of money, like twenty five percent of what they're currently paying you? to have the materials and then you do a train the trainer or certification process or whatever. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and that's what we did. We turned it over to them. <clears throat> now with caveats, it can only be used internal to their company. If they acquire new companies, they have to additionally then license new um, volume, let's say. But we also, we also did it with state governments um, because they can't afford to have external consultants there on a daily basis. So um, we, it was a slide, sort of a sliding scale in terms of what was reasonable for a nonprofit versus state mm -hmm. government versus a, you know, big bucks. <laughs> so how did you did you see how that process of what you did with your program? Did you see that how that affected your daily operations, the value of your business? I mean, what were the, some of the ramifications that you saw? Um, I tell you what. One of the challenges is in trying to grow passive income in a professional services company. You're so busy doing the work day to day, month to month, year to year, meeting your goals, that to step aside and turn something into intellectual property um, that might not re bring revenue in for a year, it's really hard to do. And, and so your compensation structure has to be really carefully constructed so that 
at the for, for instance at the end of our year you would get paid on your percentage of ownership you would get paid on how much revenue you drove during the year meaning billable hours and business do- you would get paid also on did you develop an intellectual property that over the next two years we could project earnings on interesting I like and it. Because if you didn't do that, you couldn't get people to stop working <laughs> <laughs> right. on today's work. And it's the same thing with exit planning. You know, 96% of people know they need to have an exit plan. 15% of people have an exit plan of small business. We spend 80 hours a year on average developing our yearly operating plan. What we're going to do this year or next year. We spend eight hours on exit planning, if that. So it's, you know, it's where do we get our reward? And so in my book, I talk a lot about you need bifocals. You need to be able to not only look at what's right in front of you, and it's got to be clearly in focus, and that's why you get the bottom half of your glasses. That's called your operating plan and this year's goals. And you've got to have that distance vision that lets you say, where is this operating plan take me five years from now so that I can leave or four years from now? So you, you bridged a perfect um, piece of this to into your book because you took, I mean, what you've done with a professional services firm, it, I mean, I think it's one of the biggest struggles because it's, it like you said, to to step away and pull your head up when you're creating revenue to not create revenue to build a plan it just it's like this catch 22 and you're in this constant battle and in your book um i can't remember what uh you titled it it's like too tired uh to work on the business or what well, i can't what's the one you've had too, to- too busy to leave too tired to stay <laughs> that's exactly i mean gosh that says so much um so your book uh, is fantastic, and out of the books that I've read over the last couple of years uh, around this whole exit planning, exit strategies, I think it's a very action-oriented book, which is great, and it's not, you know, some 500-page um, course that some that business owner is going to sit down and read because I think, like, based on that just phrase that we just said, that's the challenge, right? So to actually even read a book or to start building a plan is just a, a big. A big hurdle. So to pick up any kind of massive book that's you know for a college course is not going to happen. So give us a little bit of a understanding of why you wrote the book after you you uh, ended up exiting your company and what was the purpose behind it. Uh, well, everybody was quite surprised when I wrote this book on exit planning because uh, you know I only sold one company. <laughs> But, um, and everybody said, oh, why aren't you writing a book on leadership? And why aren't you writing a book on change management? That was what you spent 20 years of your business doing. But there were a million books out on that. I even got a call from a publisher saying, we're really interested in having you write us a book on change management. And I almost threw up. It's like everybody's written a book about change management. So what happened was I had two or three friends who were selling or trying to sell their businesses, or in various stages. And I had met a woman on, I was playing golf one day here in San Diego, and I met this woman, and she said she had had this retail business in cancer care equipment. 
um, you, you know, like wigs and prosthesis and so forth. And I said, really? And you sold it? She said, yeah. And it was, you know, I sold it for the right money. I sold it for, um, you know, in the right time frame. And I sold it to the wrong buyer. And she started crying. I was oh like, my gosh. oh, my gosh, ruined her golf game. <laughs> um, didn't do much for mine. But I started listening to what the heck, how, how come it was so relatively easy for us to do our transaction and so seemingly difficult for others. So I started looking into the subject, thinking I might write an article or maybe this would be a book. But it wouldn't be a book like most of the books out there, which are all about the transaction. How do you value? How mm-hmm. do you do the business valuation? How do you work with investment bankers? You know, how do you da 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 da? I wanted this to be based on what I understood about leading change and getting your head ready and your heart ready and your company ready to be sold. And that's when I started doing the research and I found out that only. 14, 13.6% or something of people have an exit plan. I was astounded. Like, how can that many people be in the dark? And it must be because there must be some reasons why people don't have plans. And I discovered three reasons people don't have plans. And one is they're too busy. (laughs) Second is they think it can be delayed. You know, put it off till later. And third is scares them to death because they just don't know what they're going to do afterwards. And it's a bit of a mortality smack in the face. So I decided I was going to write this book for how to, how to work through those, those um, aspects of planning and try to make it something that it felt like you were sitting across the table from somebody just talking to them. Mm-hmm. And I love the, the underlying uh, phrase on the, tire on the cover of the book, which is with pride and profit, because it's two separate things. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, for me, it was I wanted to be proud of the fact my business kept going after me. And, and that actually was on page, that one pager from the beginning. Uh, and I wanted to be proud that we were doing the kind of work that we had a great reputation. People wanted to be part of it. And oh, by the way, from the very beginning, I wanted it to be profitable. And that in the long term, that meant so that I could fund my retirement. Because, you know, 75% of people have of small business owners have their equity tied up, their retirement equity tied up in their business. And unfortunately, only about 25 to 27% of small business owners sell for the true value of their business. And 20% just close the door. So let's dive into some of those stats. When you were doing your research, why? what were some of the reasonings behind that stats? Because I think there's a lot of these that kind of float around in the the industry that's forming around this, but I, it's really understanding those stats. I mean, what what are some of your insights on them? Well, I, I'm telling you, I, I, I learned so much in writing this book, and I worked with an, an editor who said, it can't be 500 pages. <laughs> so <laughs> it ended up being 250 or something, but it's, you know, big print and wide margins, and maybe that helps. And um, graphs, it's awesome. <laughs> and graphs, and it has worksheets in it and so on. But the, um, but the statistic that probably struck me this, the biggest was that the number of of small business, mid-sized business owners that are going to turn 70 in the next 10 to 15 years 
is going to grow from currently, uh, I don't know, it's, I don't have the, the graph in front of me. Well, maybe I do. I think it was, uh, went from like, what, 27,000 to like 200,000 by 2030? Is, is that what it was? Um, it's going to grow by 600% in 10 years and 900% in the next 15 to 20 years. So if you think about it this way. Suppose you had a house in a great neighborhood and you loved your house and you'd spent most of your, a, a good part of your adult life in it. And it was just beautiful house and oh my God, every single piece of everything about it you loved. And on a typical year, maybe three houses get sold in your neighborhood. And all of a sudden you get this information that says in the next five to 10 years, 12 houses are going to come on the market. And in the next 10 years to 15 years, another there will be 20 houses for sale on the market in your neighborhood. Would you wait five or 10 years to start the process of getting your house positioned to be sold at top value? Or would you wait till six months before you're ready to move? You know, if you're a planner like me, you'd say, I need to start cleaning out the closet. <laughs> I, need, I need to get the garage. I need to make sure that the roof I'm not going to have to repair the roof right in the middle of trying to sell the house. I'd start looking at that house and saying, what's going to bring it its top value and how do I get positioned for it to sell in three years or five years watching the market? I can't afford to be in a market with 12 houses for sale on, on my block because I need that money to retire. I'm not willing to go into that kind of competition. That's what's going to happen with small business owners. But the, the, but the success rate of companies being sold for full value hasn't changed. And it isn't projected much to change. In fact, it could get worse because people are not prepared, to, aren't doing in advance the planning needed to be done to get the full value. There, there's a PwC research uh, statistic, I think it was Pricewaterhouse, that said that companies that spend less than six months getting ready to sell their businesses, get 50 to 70% of the value of their business. That's a lot of money. That's a leaving a lot of money on the table. Yep. So I kind of think of it as my house. And how, how do I make sure it's in tip top so I can be at the top of the pyramid when the price is, when the, you know, when I'm ready to sell? So, you know, I think one of the challenges that I, I see as I work with owners or I, you know, talk to some of our listeners is what is valuable, right? Right. I mean, it's kind of like when you look at a house and you've got your own inspector that does it and you don't realize it's, it's so funny. Like um, I heard some real estate agent talk about it where, you know, the person's walking the real estate agent to their house and they say, but, but my, my, my grandmother built this mantle. <laughs> It's like, <laughs> yeah, but right. the new owner does not care. So it's having this, you know, how do you, how, how do you get the owner to have this awareness of what is valuable to transferable value to someone else? You know, so in your book, you, you talk about a lot of different things and there's uh, 10 different steps as they're building this plan, but can you elude or uh, can you dive a little bit more into where this value is and how do you create it and what, um, what the owner should start looking at? You know, I think it's it's almost everybody asks me that question, and I almost tell them the same thing. First of all, you better have a good exit strategy or exit planning team working with you, um, and whether that's a that's your CPA plus your attorney plus maybe a um, 
uh, business valuation expert, which isn't always your CPA, but sometimes, or maybe it's an investment banker if you think you're going to go with an outside third-party buyer. But I say, wait a second, back up that question to who is it you want to sell to? Because if you, if it, if you have a fuzzy, I call it the fuzzy buyer profile, <laughs> you're, you don't really have in focus who you're hoping to buy, sell to. So, because there are different kinds of buyers. There are strategic buyers who are looking at synergies and they're looking at your company and saying, how does it fit with my current business with where we're planning to grow? Where are there synergies here? Then there's a financial buyer, like a private equity group, that says, how can I buy the value that's here and and grow it because it's undervalued and I can flip it in five to ten years and get a great return on my investment? There's, I think there's some subgroups that ones I call the ready-to-wear buyer that's maybe 40 to 50 and and is saying, "Um, hmm, I want to buy my next job. Uh, these different buyers, you position, if you know you want to position your company to be sold to a certain kind of buyer, you build a very different set of, not, you don't build a different set of financials. You position your financials and your company story. The narrative. Dif- the narrative differently. Your memo, confidential memo of understanding, which in which you tell all the da- data about your company, how it's grown, what its financials are, what its liabilities are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's still a story, a narrative that goes around that. Um, and, and if you aren't clear who your ideal buyer is, you don't know how to put together the amount of, of the, the story and the financials and the documentation and the analytics that are going to appeal to that buyer. But but first of all, you're absolutely right. Nobody's going to love your company like you do. Cuz a lot of these a lot of these owners are just like you or me where it's their long-term business and family, right? They don't do this for a li- they don't sell companies for a living. No. No, that's why and that's another reason why people sort of stay away from exit planning. We know how to run our companies. We know how to build our businesses. We don't know how to sell them. And that's why you've got to get experts, experts in exit planning, in the financial. You know, if you're, if you're taking all the profits out of your business so that you have no tax liability, that's the exact wrong thing to do if you're going to be selling to a financial buyer. If you have no intellectual property, everything's in your head. A strategic buyer doesn't want your company because they don't just want you. Uh, so understanding who you're hoping to sell to. Uh, for us, we toyed with the idea of merging or, or being acquired by a larger consulting firm. And then we decided we would structure our sales so that our partners could buy it, buy it out. And we again, we worked with you know our accountant and with our exit planner to figure out how that how we'd have to structure the financials each year and the compensation structure and the profit sharing at the end of the year and what would be held back for um, buyout of the founders. So, it's not something we know how to do as business owners. You've got to get experts in. It's as if you were driving a big, fancy Formula One car and you're the driver, but you don't mess around with changing the tires when the car stops. 
You got to get those. <laughs> you got to get those folks and the high, high, you know, the engine tuners and the people who whatever they do and pit crews. <laughs> I can only take these metaphors so far. Well, I was gonna say you did a pretty good job in your book. So, what what was the? I'm just kind of curious for my own sake. Is what was what was the correlation be- between the the signs and the the cars and the the trip? Well, I felt it was a trip. I felt it was really a journey, and that's why I called it the, the expressway to selling your business um, because I wanted it to be not a meandering little bunch of side roads that you'd go down and you'd stop. I wanted them people to be in the HOV lane on selling <laughs> their business. And I thought if I, I work for metaphors and I need analogies in order for me to, you know, bring a point home. So I tried to say, all right, what can I do to help this be so common sense? And since so many business owners are male, I decided to use the car <laughs> and, a, and a, a, a journey as my way of, um, and I love cars. So, Well, I like the journey uh, analogy, to be honest, because um, Bo Burlingham was on the show a few times yeah. ago, and, uh, you know, he always goes back to, it's a journey, right? I mean, and you... Um, you had mentioned it prior, which is everybody focuses on the transaction, and the transaction is almost the most. It's not. It's not the most insignificant, but it's the the least time sensitive because the whole thing is a journey, and everybody. I mean, it, it has. It's a lot of it's compensation driven, where a lot of advisors are compensated on the transaction, but that's really just executing the plan, right? So the whole thing is actually a journey, and you should be planning or preparing way ahead of that actual transaction. I was uh, consulting to a small um, environmental engineering group, uh, and they had five partners, and two of them wanted to leave in the next 12 months, which made me laugh to begin with, because I thought, <laughs> oh, 12 months, okay, let's see how fast we can do this. And they were having, they were first of all, they were in conflict in, among the partners, which is partly why they called me in, because of my OD background, organization development background. And... Um, so I interviewed all the partners, and then I interviewed the um, oh, 10 director-level folks below them who were likely successors. And the one thing that struck me was among the five partners, they all talked about their operating agreement, you know, the, finan- the legal entity uh, document that describes under what purposes can you sell, to whom, what's the process, what's the basis for valuation, and so on. They talked about that like it was the Bible. <laughs> so, But, you know, they each quoted something a little different about it. And so I said, when's the, last, yeah, when, when's the last time you looked at your operating agreement? And they said, oh, let's see, 12 years ago. They were a, oh their company. Their company was 15 years old, and they hadn't looked at their operating agreement in 12 years, and it was so out of date that as to be just about useless. So, part of what um, happens in small companies is you're so busy, and they were very successful. They're, they were growth year after year after year, um, but they hadn't started soon enough. To say, oh my gosh, our operating agreements are out of date. We we also, by the way, if two of us leave, who's taking their place? And the people who were designated as their successors didn't even know they were in contention for being potential partners or what it was going to take to become a partner 
or what kind of financials they would need to get arranged so that they could buy into the business. I mean, it was a mess. But most of all, the five guys sitting in the owner's seats hadn't sat down and really talked about this. And that's the first step. You know, it's part of facing reality. Talking, right? Communicating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, um, and I, I, I'd be curious with all the people that you have talked and uh, and interviewed and along your career is, I heard this one owner, his quota to us after our meeting because we were talking about planning and it kind of comes back to just being aware of the situation kind of like you said just talking about it and he says well you never know I he was I lose money but then I make more money so like there's this sense of control over their whole situation that I think a lot of entrepreneurs have where they that because they've been able to build this reality of this business this world around them and they do have a lot of control around it and how to take that and then, you know, focus it in on just having a conversation about what else is outside of that. I don't know if you've seen what are what are the, the things that people have done to start to have that conversation, just to even be aware. You mean life after? Yeah. Uh, it is, um, it's a really hard conversation to have. I, I, I've sat with. Um, business owners and friends and I actually put together a set of kind of worksheets that help them think about you know you don't drive your car by looking in the rearview mirror you look through the windshield but that doesn't mean you never use the rearview mirror <laughs> because there are things to be noticed about um, what's behind and what's motivated you. There are so many amazing books out on retirement, which is why I didn't spend a lot of time on retirement planning in, in exit signs. Uh, Cause there's just great stuff out there. Um, uh, don't rewire, don't retire. Rewire is one. Um, of course, Gerber's book on the, um, uh, the entrepreneur, oh shoot, the myth of the entrepreneur revisited. Yep. Uh, they all give great, I, great ideas on how do you set this up so it can go on after you. But it's still a psychological question for every individual. Like, what am I going to do then? And so part of what I suggest is two things. You have to look at what, what, what motivates you, not what activities you love to do. But what is it that makes your heart sing? So if building things makes your heart sing, then don't get on a nonprofit board where all you do is advise and uh, on you know the general um, op, the general focus of the nonprofit. Unless it's a startup entrepreneurial social venture, then that's a little different because now you like to build things. You could be on a social venture board where you're helping them decide their future. But if you need to, and if part of what excites you and motivates you is getting in the mix of things and having your hands on, don't get on a board at all. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> you don't get to do that. Instead, 
figure, you know, go find, uh, go do Habitat for Humanity where you're actually building a home. Now, I'm using all nonprofits as an example. No, I, I think it's, it's a good one because I'm on the board of a nonprofit right now and there's uh, 10 people. Uh-huh. And it's a struggle because it's I'm very action-oriented <laughs> and there's like nothing that happens. It's like I, all I can imagine is being stuck in a corporate boardroom where everybody talks about the next meeting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, I would talk about that, and I, I say there. Were, after, after you sell your business, a lot of people will say, "Oh, I'm just going to stay on as a consultant." You know, they're probably going to want me for a couple years to just help the company keep running, and that's seldom the case. They may say six months because we need you to work with a particular customer, or uh, six months because we need you to transfer some of what's in your head to our COO that's coming on board or the CEO who's coming on board. Um, so it's really important if, if there's two questions that you're asking. One is one has to do with if you stay on with your company, there's, is there a particular role that makes sense for you? And again, it goes back to what motivates you. Um, if for, for me, what motivated me was I was so proud of our company. I, I just loved what we were doing, what we had done that I had, five, six great partners who are continuing it. They had a, a runway of big clients and revenue that was were going to run them out, you know, long after I was gone. And so the best role for me, because that's what motivated me, was to share that story and sort of be the ambassador. I called it the picture on mm. the wall. You know, put my picture on the wall because I'm never stepping foot in this office again. <laughs> Not because I don't love you all, but because I know what'll happen. If I'm in this office, I'll start falling right back into that old routine of, well, why aren't you doing that? And what <laughs> yeah. about that? I almost couldn't read the Wall Street Journal for a while because every time I'd read it, I'd see a business opportunity and I'd want to pick up the phone and call them and say, did you see this article on the merger between? The- <laughs> so, so part of it is part of understanding what you're going to do next is understanding what um, what motivates you? What drives you? Is it teaching? Is it, um, is it coaching? Is it which is two different things? What is it? Um, is it being very hands-on with something? I, you know, is it working for? Is it starting a new company? What what some people do, which I think is such a shame, is they think, oh my gosh, I don't have my company to run anymore, so I think I'll start another company just like it. Uh, so that I can continue to do the things I've always done. You know, and unfortunately, the image that comes to our mind, if it's not that, is, do you remember in The Godfather, where um, um, Marlon Brando is sitting in the garden at the end of the movie, and he's sitting in the garden in this chair, and he has his grandkids playing around, and he's kind of slack-jawed and drooling, and, and people have this image of, I'm going out to the garden to go to seed if I don't have a business to run. When in fact, it's about understanding what gives you joy, what gives you a sense of powerful, what gives you a sense of being effective. And when you know what those kinds of things are, there's lots of ways to apply that besides having a role still in your old company, starting another one, or defaulting to being on a board of directors for a nonprofit, which could be the absolute worst thing you can do. It was for me. I've been on three different boards for nonprofits. I love them all. I give them money. 
I'm not going to be on a board again. Well, and, and I think it's also a process of trial and error too, right? So I, I yeah. got I got a question for you because um, you said that you absolutely had a blast. You loved it. I mean, you can I can just tell just in th- your enthusiasm how much you enjoyed your company and the people and the customers, and you were successful. So like, why leave, right? I mean, and I, I know I'm kind of asking the big, huge question that I think a lot of owners always think, which is, well, why leave if this is what I love doing? I'm making a bunch of money. It's my family, my friends, my everything, right? And then that's why people end up starting, you know, a second company similar because they're trying to get that sense of happiness and purpose that they had essentially gotten rid of. So how did you deal with that? And also, what would you say to the owner who's thinking that? You used some really good words there. I wish I'd have written them down. Hey, this, uh, is, re- this is being recorded, so we got that for us. <laughs> there you go, yeah. Um, I was happy. I had made a lot of money. I, but I go back to that very one pager. What was my purpose? I knew from the beginning what my end game was. My CPA uh, at the time, I went to a big Christmas party. He had one every year, and I got invited, and that was very lovely. And and I was greeted by him at the door, and he gave me this huge hug, and he said, I've never known anybody who had timing like you did for leaving their business. Hmm. And I first I thought, well, why? You know, it's been planned for five years. It wasn't like we decided yesterday and I sold it. Um, I mean, it continued to have great revenues. Uh, it continued to have the same partners. It, of course, the, re- the recession of 2007, just in 2008 and 2009, really set it back. But they're continuing to grow again. And But for me, leaving, I it was just part of what I planned to do. I wanted to leave when things were great. And could they have been greater? Might they have been, you know, instead of six and a half million, could they maybe have been seven had I stayed another year? Yeah, but so I was happy. And being one of, I can't remember who wrote this in one of his books. The test of being, the, the test of a successful sale of your business is a year later, can you say, I'm happy? And a year later, I could say, I'm as happy as I've ever been. My company's still going. I'm traveling all over the world. I have grandkids to, to spend time with. Um, uh, my, my retirement is secure. Why, I don't need to run a business to feel fulfilled. There's lots of other things now I'm doing that make me feel fulfilled. That is, I think, very, I mean... Very deep because I think that you nailed it, right? I mean, you did it all right. And I believe that it's a lot of your planning that got you that. You deserve that happiness, uh-huh. right? Yeah. And I think the big challenge that, I mean, you're, you're uniquely built because I don't think a lot of entrepreneurs have that planning gene that you mentioned. So, you know, when they say, well, why sell? It's because they have zero idea of the self-awareness that you have, right? Where the, you had actually consciously built your happiness and your identity with your business and then how you wanted to go out. So I just, you know, I think the biggest challenge that a lot of owners have is if that's not them, how do they go about doing that? I say that the number one question 
business owner needs to ask is, do I really want to sell? And if yes, when? And if no, when will I know? Because you have to be clear that you want to sell your company and in what time frame. Okay, and if the answer is no, then don't muck around pretending like you're getting your company ready to sell because you'll go you'll waste money and resources and people's credibility, people's faith in you because you'll go through some due diligence stuff, you'll mess around with maybe some interested buyers and you won't be able to sign the on the dotted line. So don't go there. So and if the answer is no, I'm, I don't want to sell. Okay, then the question is, when will I know it's time? And well, if you, that's a deep question. When will I know it's time? When I've run it into the ground and it's like I'm dead, or <laughs> or or it's uh, it's at a certain number. Maybe there's a certain number, or I've got three people in place that know everything I know. What are the signs that say I'm ready? And people aren't often willing to do that work. I think it's a great question because when will I know? Even by answering that, you're in turn coming to the realization that you will be selling at some point. You will have to transfer your company at some point. And everybody leaves their yeah. business, either toes up or toes forward, but everybody leaves their business. <laughs> So if there's, you know, we've talked about a lot of different things here. If there's one thing that you would leave our listeners with that we maybe haven't touched on or if you want to elaborate on, what would it be? Well, we've talked about a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There, you know, there's, oh, of course, they should buy my book. (laughs) No, I don't, I I don't think there's anything uh, that, that wouldn't take, you know, too long to go into, but it has to do with just getting in touch with why you're in business, what's your end game, and facing reality. Am I, you know, do I want to sell this business? And then if so, when? And it's okay to say in 10 years. That gives you lots of nice time. Of course, in 10 years, there's going to be a hell of a lot more businesses on the market. A lot more competition. Yeah. So, no, I don't think there's anything else I would add. What's the best place for our listeners to get in touch with you? Uh, my website is www.pamelaDennisPhD.com. And unfortunately, you have to have the PhD in there or you end up with this fabulous dress designer. <laughs> you get commissions uh, on that? <laughs> no. I mean, she really is a famous, world-famous dress designer. And so she is PamelaDennis.com. So you don't want to use it. It's PamelaDennis.com. PamelaDennisPhD.com um, or my email is Pamela at DennisConsult.com Pamela, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. I loved it. Thank you. It was fun. Mm-hmm.